I apologize, I'm used to having more time before the record button is pushed on the camera. It's good to not preach another week to a video camera. It's been really difficult to stare straight ahead the whole time at just the front of a camera. I just can't explain how strange that's been. And I thought of my tendency was still to look around, but there was nobody here. And so I thought if somebody saw me doing that, that would look so strange and disingenuous. But why is he staring and scanning empty seats? Or you'd think that we were smuggling people in. And you'd want to know why you weren't invited. So if you remember months ago, we were in a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. And when we pick up 1 Corinthians again, we'll actually be in part 43 of that sermon series. But then we took a break from 1 Corinthians when we got to chapter 14. And we were doing a sermon series on the identity and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when we resume that, we will move into part five of that sermon series. Then we ended up locked down in our homes, and we decided that that would be a good time to do a sermon series on prayer. Well, that sermon series is not finished. There's still a couple weeks, and so as we came back together today, I had to figure out, am I going to preach in prayer or on the Holy Spirit, or on 1 Corinthians. Nice to have some options. So I decided we're going to move into week 7 now of this sermon series on prayer. God willing, we'll wrap this up in a couple weeks, and then we'll finish our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. A few more weeks there, and then we'll return to 1 Corinthians and wrap that up over the next several years. <laughs> In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. In other words, Christian, through the mediation of Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit's help, we have access to God the Father. That's extraordinary. We can actually approach God we can approach the living God and we can speak to Him in prayer. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus Himself, He taught us how to pray. Many of you may have memorized this prayer when you were younger. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. Although that might be a better title for the prayer in John chapter 17. This is the disciples' prayer. This is how the Lord teaches the disciples, how He teaches us. 
how to pray. And in Matthew 6, in verses 5 through 8, he began by giving two prerequisites. One, don't be like the hypocrites who were insincere. And two, don't be like the Gentiles who didn't know God and ended up heaping up long-winded prayers, thinking that God would be impressed by that, and then moved into action. Don't do that, Jesus says. Rather, when you pray, be sincere. Talk to God from your heart, remembering that God hears you. And God hears you not because of the form of your prayer, not because of your eloquence, not because of the sophistication of your words, but God hears you, Christian, not based on how you pray, but because of who you are. And you are a child of God. I assume you parents don't get too hung up on how your kids approach you if they need to talk to you. You listen to them because they're your kids. You don't listen to other people's kids, but you listen to them because they're your children. You have a special relationship with them. It's no different between you, Christian, and your heavenly Father. So with those preliminaries out of the way, Jesus moved on with his model prayer, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, he said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So it is good to begin prayer with an attitude of worship directed to God as your heavenly Father. Jesus makes a point. When you pray, here is a good place to start. Before you get into your list that we all have and have a tendency to get into right away, Worship God, praise Him for who He is, thank Him for what He has done. Then from worship, Jesus moved into surrender. Matthew 6, verse 10, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My heart was moved yesterday as I sat across from Corelli Wright and listened to her surrender to the will of God. Pleading with God, of course, for her husband's life. And also saying with great conviction and confidence, God, I want your will to be done. Surrender. Not what I want, God, but what you want. Because what I really want and what I would be asking for right now is exactly what I would ask for if I knew everything that you know, God. And so the Christian prays at the end of the day, 
God, your will be done. From worship to surrender and then to dependence. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And daily bread is a phrase that refers to all of your needs. The food I need, the water I need, the shelter I need, the the clothing I need, the liberty I need, all these things that I need. And so the dependent prayer is, God, give me everything that this present life needs. And now this morning, we move on to verse 12 from worship to surrender to dependence, now to confession. And in this verse, it involves confessing sin and then seeking forgiveness from God. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We'll stop there. At least for the next couple weeks, we have less time in the preaching. And so we'll save verse 13 for a couple weeks from now. So there are two parts in this verse, in verse 12. You can see them right in front of you. There is seeking forgiveness, and there is granting forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness and then granting forgiveness. So to receive this, to understand it, to apply it, we will need, as always, God's help this morning. So please bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, fill our minds with truth. Fill our hearts with affection so that we would know And love you more fully. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If you haven't already, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. The first part of this prayer, it deals with seeking forgiveness. And it reads, and forgive us our Debts. That is, God, let go of our debts. God, put away our debts. God, please do not hold our debts against us. So debts, that is the interesting word that Matthew uses to describe sin which is disobeying God. That's what sin is. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is when you do what God forbids or when you don't do what God commands. And when you do what God forbids or when you don't do what God commands, you and I, we are in sin. But Matthew here, He does not say, as Luke does, for example, Matthew does not say, forgive us our sins, but rather, forgive us our debts. Why? 
Why does Matthew use this word? There's something that Matthew wants to say about sin. There is something that Matthew wants us to understand. And it's likely this. When we sin, we accumulate debt before God. When we sin, we accumulate debt before God. When we sin, we are withholding from God what He is owed. We are not giving to God what He deserves. And so we are accumulating debt before God. Think about it. We belong to God. God has made us. And God has made us for Himself. God has made us to worship Him. God has made us to live not for ourselves, but to live for Him. God has made us to love Him with our whole heart. And we don't. Not one of us does that. Not one of us has a truly undivided heart and loves God the way that He requires. We sin. We disobey God. We have not given God our whole heart in perfect obedience, even though that is what He deserves. And even though that is what we owe Him as the one who has made us and loved us. And so, we are now indebted to Him. Matthew wants us to have that in mind. Think about the world. What happens if you do not pay the debts that you owe? What happens if you deny your creditors? What happens if you deny your government? What happens if you deny the bank that loaned you the money to buy your home? You're penalized at the very least. You are punished. You may be fined. You may lose your home. You may even go to jail. So with these debts, you are left with two options and only two options. I mean, really one. But you're left, let's say, with two options. You can pay the debt you owe or I suppose the bank could pay it. Now, if the bank, if the government, if they decide to pay the debt that you owe and someone always pays it, but the word we use for that is what? Forgiveness. If that loan, if that debt is forgiven, that means someone else is absorbing the payment so that you don't have to. 
So our sins are debts before God. You know where Matthew is going. We have not given God what he deserves. And the penalty for that, according to Romans 6.23, is eternal death. That's the penalty. That is the punishment for not paying the debt that we owe to God. And paying off our debt is not an option, is it? It doesn't work with God the way it works with the world. You have your debts, and most of you, you can pay them off. Maybe you need to get a second job. Maybe you need to get a third job. Maybe you need to renegotiate the terms of your loan. But you have to pay it off. You cannot pay off your debt to God. Trying harder is not an option, though Christians try and do that over and over again. Try as hard as you want, and you will continue to accumulate debt before God. You cannot perfectly obey Him. You do not and cannot and have never loved Him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. You have not perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. And so these sins are accumulating debt before God, and we are not able, we are not able to give God what He deserves or what He requires from us. And so what do we do? We seek forgiveness. It's our only option. It is our only hope. We seek forgiveness. We ask God to let it go. We ask God to cancel our debt so that, Matthew Henry puts it this way, so that our obligation to punishment may be canceled and vacated, that we may not come into condemnation, that we may be discharged and have the comfort of it. We pray as Jesus instructs, Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Now before moving on to part two, let's pause and ask the most important question in the world. How's that? And what is it? As it pertains to this text, what is the most important question in all the world? On what basis do we ask God to forgive this debt? That's the important question. Well, that's quite a question to ask Him. So on what basis, what's the foundation beneath that, asking God to forgive this debt? I mean, think about this prayer. We worship Him based on His glory. We surrender to Him based on His goodness and His greatness. We depend on Him based on His perfect faithfulness. But what about this part of the prayer? On what basis do we ask God to forgive our debts? Most of us, if you own a home, you do not own your home outright. 
you've borrowed money from a bank and you are paying it off over the next 15, 30 years. Can you imagine setting up an appointment with a banker and sitting across from him and asking him if he would be willing to forgive your debt? That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? On what basis would you ask that question? So if God is a good God and a just God, on what basis do we come before Him daily like this, over and over again, and say, forgive us this debt, forgive me this debt, forgive me this debt? What is that based on? Is this just some kind of a Hail Mary sort of prayer? That we're throwing out without any kind of basis. I hope he forgives me. Is it based on your intentions to do better in the future? I used to do that so many times when I was younger. That would be the basis of my seeking forgiveness. God, I won't do it again. And on that, I felt worthy to ask God to forgive me. Is it based on how well you've done in the past? I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as this person. I've never done that. I would, would never do that. And so on that basis, God, will you be merciful? Will you forgive me? Is it based on the unfounded and common notion that God does not take sin seriously and doesn't hold people accountable? That's not true, but many people believe that today and have a one-dimensional view of God that He is all-loving, all-merciful, all-forgiving, and not good or just or righteous. So what is it based on? How can a good, righteous, just God forgive your debts? Who's going to pay that debt? Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, it begs this question. You hear God's people, and even the prophets in the Old Testament wrestle with this. How can God be good and just and hold us accountable, and yet forgive us of sin. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. We love this. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We love this. And then it says this about God. But... Who will by no means clear the guilty? I don't love that. I didn't memorize the second part. Who will by no means clear the guilty? Why don't I like that? I'm guilty. I'm guilty now. I've been guilty in the last hour. I've been guilty multiple times, I think, in the last 24 hours. And God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. 
God takes sin very seriously. God holds sinners accountable. So how do I then, on what basis, ask God to forgive me? I mean, let me summarize what he just said in Exodus 34. God is a God who clears the guilty, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's what it says. So which, well, God, which is it? Are you going to clear the guilty or are you by no means going to clear the guilty? And the answer is both. How? Through Jesus Christ. Romans 3.25 God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show this punishing, unleashing wrath on Jesus on the cross. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In other words, He passed them over. He's not going to let them go. They must be punished. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. Listen. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when we say, which is it? Is God going to be just and give justice to the guilty? Or... Is he going to justify the guilty? Romans 3 says, through Jesus, God accomplishes both. He is just and right and true, and he justifies now the guilty ones. Christian, you are a sinner. And Jesus has taken your debt. And He has suffered the punishment for you, paying the price in full. In full. Not only that, not only did Jesus die for you, He lived for you. Pastor Greg prayed this. And as He lived for you, as Jesus lived for you, Throughout his entire life, he did not accumulate an ounce of debt before God. Not an ounce of debt. And so, Christian, you now stand forgiven because of his death, paying the price, and you stand righteous because he lived in your place and he did not accumulate a cent. Of debt. What an exchange. You gave Jesus sin and death, and he gave you righteousness and life. What a deal.
What a horrible exchange. What a glorious exchange. What a terrible thing to happen. What a wonderful thing to happen. What a just God. What a merciful God. And so on that basis, with confidence, we confess our sin. And because God is just, not in spite of His justice, He forgives us. He has accepted the death of Christ as payment in full, and so it would be unjust to require double payment from you. Which is why 1 John 1, 9 puts it this way, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the second part of this verse should be easy now. Easy to understand, not easy to do. The second part of this prayer deals with granting forgiveness and it reads, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, our debtors are those who sin against us. And the verse reads, forgive us as, it's an important word, we have forgiven others. Not forgive us if we forgive others. It is assumed that we are doing this. Do you hear that? Forgive us as, it is assumed that we are, as a people who are asking for forgiveness, that we are a people who are giving it. So that is an important clarification. Forgiving others, that's not a condition by which we earn God's forgiveness. God is not saying, I will forgive you if you forgive others. You forgive others and then I'll forgive you. You're still holding out here. Okay, oh, you, you did it. Okay, now I'll forgive you. That's not what's going on. Remember, the basis of your forgiveness is not how forgiving you are. The basis is the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Now, am I sure about that? Because look at verses 14 and 15, which are explaining this second part of verse 12. And it seems to say that this is conditional. Read it with me. For if, there's the word if, I mean the word if is there. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's what I think is going on. The Bible speaks firmly like this at times to get our attention and to expose sin like an unforgiving spirit. It promotes self-examination when you hear the Bible talk like that. Am I doing this? Rather than verses 14 and 15 saying, if you are a believer, God forgives you. Which is what Romans 10, 9 says. 
If you are a believer, God forgives you. Jesus says, if you forgive others, which is what a believer does. If you forgive others, God forgives you. Stuart Weber writes, One does not gain forgiveness by forgiving, but a person evidences his or her own forgiveness by forgiving others. That's the point. That's the force of it. Or John Stott said, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God. Have you had this happen? Once our eyes have been open to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. This would be a good time to ask the question, are you forgiving? Are you a forgiving person? Are there people right now you need to forgive? If you are asking God to forgive you, this prayer assumes that you are forgiving others. Are you letting the sins of others against you go? What does that mean? Well, even if they have not repented, as is in the case in Mark eleven twenty five, even if they have not apologized, even if they have not asked forgiveness, is there an attitude, is there a disposition towards them that is forgiving? In other words, do you hope the best for them? People who have offended you, people who have hurt you, people who have injured you, people who have mistreated you, People who have abused you. Do you hope the best for them? Have you released them from judgment and entrusted them to the judgment of God? Are you actively fighting off resentment and bitterness? Do you stand hopeful and ready and willing to reconcile? Should repentance take place? Or... Are you like Jonah with the Ninevites and you would actually be upset if they repented because you know how good and merciful God is? Those are the kinds of questions we ask to get to the bottom of, are we forgiving others? If you are a Christian, you have all the power and motivation you need to forgive. A very helpful text is found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and following. We don't have time to read it, but in conclusion, let me remind you of the story there. And interestingly, Jesus uses the idea of debt in Matthew 18 to explain sin and forgiveness. So it starts with Peter, do you remember, asking Jesus how many times he has to forgive someone? Evidently, someone had been sinning against Peter over and over again. Maybe it was his mother-in-law. Maybe it was a brother. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was one of the disciples. So how many times? Seven? It's funny, isn't it? Like there's a number. And then Jesus answered, 
77. Now his point was not literally 77. So don't get out a notepad and start tracking. <laughs> That's 78, buddy. We're done. His point was, it's endless. Just over and over and over again. And then, and then he asked, Jesus tells him a story. Jesus tells him a story. The story was about a king. And this king had a servant who owed him a lot of money. The servant did not pay it. So he sinned against the king. And so the king ordered him to be sold along with his wife, along with his children, to pay off the debt that he owed. And so the man gets on his knees before the king, and he begs him and says, please, please, please give me mercy. And the king, do you remember the story? He gives it. What is that? Forgiveness. He forgives him of this debt. Then, here's the story, the man goes out and starts choke, really choking a guy who owes him a little bit of money. The man begs this man to let the debt go, to extend mercy, to show him forgiveness, and he doesn't give it. And he throws the man in jail. Well, the king hears about this man. And he calls this man into his throne room. And he says this. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. You see? The point of the story? The one who has been shown mercy shows mercy. It's the motivation to forgive. It's the power to forgive. The forgiveness that we as Christians have received, it motivates us to forgive others. And so we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. We ask, God, that you would fill us with truth. God, that we would take hold of the gospel and believe over and over again the gospel and remember the mercy that you have shown us so that we could extend that mercy and forgiveness to others. We thank you for this motivation. We thank you for this strength and power you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.